everyone and welcome back to another episode of what the forensics my name is journey and i am joined here today by the lovely nicole and rebecca this week rebecca will be telling us all about the case of jeffrey mcdonald and nicole will be educating us on the science of crime scene reconstruction and how it played an instrumental role in this case i would also like to note that there is a listener's discretion advised as there are detailed descriptions of child death in this episode and with that being said rebecca do you want to tell us more about who jeffrey mcdonald was and what he did I would love to. So Jeffrey McDonald was born in Jamaica, Queens, New York on October 12th of 1943. In general, McDonald had a pretty normal upbringing uh, and it was definitely one that set him up for success in his life. In high school, it would have appeared that McDonald had everything going for him. In his high school yearbook, for example, his classmates had voted him most popular and most likely to succeed and it is his Sorry, and in his senior year, he was even voted prom king. So he excelled not only socially, but also academically. Um, as when he graduated high school, he was awarded a three-year full-ride scholarship to attend Princeton University. Um, and it was at Princeton that he began studying medicine in 1962. So around 1963 to 64, McDonald began dating a girl whose name was Colette Catherine Stevenson. And McDonald and Stevenson had actually dated years before. They already knew each other. Um, They dated when they were in the eighth grade. But going how most middle school relationships do, it didn't last that long. It only lasted about a year. At that time in their life... um, They were both going to different schools. However, McDonald would frequently spend weekends with her in her dorm room to try to make long distance work. Also at this time, McDonald was not really exclusive to her, so he was kind of dating other girls as well. However, um, when Colette told McDonald in August of 1963 that she was pregnant with his child, he almost immediately proposed to her and decided that he wanted to raise this child together. So McDonald finished university. However, Colette had dropped out of school that she was attending after learning of the pregnancy to really just take on the complete role of being this child's mother. So on September 14th of 1963, before the birth of their first child, McDonald and Colette got married in New York City. Their first child, a daughter named Kimberly Catherine McDonald, was then born a few months later on April 18th of 1964. They remained living near Princeton University after McDonald completed his undergrad degree uh, up until he was accepted to attend Northwestern University Medical School in Chicago in 1965. So it was the same year that because of the acceptance, McDonald, Collette and their firstborn daughter moved into a small one bedroom apartment in Chicago. While attending medical school, Colette became a stay-at-home mom, taking care of their apartment and dedicating her time to raising their daughter, while McDonald both attended medical school and worked multiple part-time jobs to ensure that they had money to pay their bills. I'm just shocked that he's able to go to school and support a baby and stay-at-home wife on part-time jobs. I know. It's crazy. And also medical school at that. Like, that's demanding. Yeah, I, like, read that, and I was shocked that that's how, like, that he was even able to do that. 
Me too, honestly. Um, and apparently that all paid off for him because they later moved into a larger house in a nice suburban neighborhood uh, where they also welcomed their second child into the world, Kristen Jean McDonald, on May 8th of 1967. McDonald completed medical school in 1968. And so once again, he would make his family move uh, to a different state. And this time it was New Jersey because he had accepted a one-year internship or residency at the Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York, where he would specialize in thoracic surgery, which I believe is like chest surgery, like heart, lungs, all that kind of thing. Um, so... Unfortunately, but also unsurprisingly, McDonald's residency put a pretty big strain on his marriage um, because it was during this time that his rotations were 36 hours at the hospital and only 12 at home at a time. Um, and obviously, with that little time he did have at home, he was very exhausted and was using it to catch up on sleep before having to go back to the hospital for another 36-hour shift. So after completing his residency on June 28th of 1969, um, their marriage kind of settled out again and everything was happy. And Colette was even reported of saying that this was kind of her perfect life. Um, and McDonald joined the United States Army as a commissioned officer. And he went on to a six week course in Texas for becoming an army physician. So it was during this training course that McDonald had volunteered himself to join the Special Forces, which is often referred to as the Green Berets, as a Special Force physician. So after training, in August of 1969, he was stationed as a surgeon at the 3rd Special Forces Group Airborne at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And so once again, because of employment, he and his family move, this time for the final time before everything kind of goes down, uh, they moved to the Army base of North Carolina. And it was an, this is kind of important for later, um, it was an unsecured open Army base, so there was no like borders or anything around it, and the public could kind of just go in as they pleased. So all was fine and well in the McDonald's lives for the next few months. Um, Colette had now gone back to school and was completing her second year of university as an English literature undergrad um, during evening classes. And she was also now pregnant with the couple's first son. Uh, also, McDonald was transferred to work um, in the sixth special forces group as a preventative medical officer. Uh, and this was only because the third special forces group of on the same base had been disbanded. But luckily the sixth special forces group was also on the same army base. So there was no more moving. <laughs> um, and it was around the same time uh, that he was switched to the sixth special forces group that he got promoted to captain in early 1970 and was planning on furthering his medical education at Yale after getting a few years under his belt with the army. So it really seemed like the McDonald's were a perfect, happy family living their best lives until the very early morning of February 17th of 1970. So the facts of this crime scene uh, to this day are still disputed um, as McDonald and his defense have a different story than the prosecution has, as is with most criminal cases. Um, 
But then they also have a different story than an author named Joe McGinnis, who had befriended McDonald throughout the trial. And McDonald basically every day was sending this author um, audio notes and stuff, just detailing his entire life, detailing everything about the crime. He completely trusted this author to shed a good light and prove he was innocent. And instead, this author turned around um, and tried to show how guilty he was. That's kind of a side note. There's a whole civil litigation case about that, uh, which is also involved in the 50 years of this proceeding. I have a question. Yeah. I heard somewhere that in Canada, you're not allowed to like make money off of like the crimes that you've committed. Like if I murdered someone and I went to jail, I wasn't allowed to make a or write a book and then take profit from that. Do you know if that's the same in the States? I don't think it is in the States. I don't know how it works in this case because he has always adamantly said he was innocent. So I don't know if it's different because he's so adamant on his innocence sort of thing, or if they just don't care in the United States and they can make money off themselves. (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess so. I feel like, I wonder if like having like a ghost author, like, it wasn't technically McDonald that wrote it. It was Joe McGinnis. So yeah, then- that very well could be. Um, because I do know that Joe McGinnis um, had a contract with uh, McDonald that McDonald would get some of the proceeds of the book. So that is possible. Okay, interesting. Um, so yeah, just moving on a little bit from that tangent about civil lawsuit, this book, whatever. Basically... Everybody seems to have a different opinion and uh, storyline of exactly how this went down. Um, But this is kind of what's generally accepted currently by the courts. So around 3.42 a.m. on February 17th of 1970, the Fort Bragg Dispatcher Center would receive a frantic phone call from McDonald, who was basically quietly yelling into the phone um, just like screaming for help, um, shouting his address. He was saying, help, 544 Castle Drive, stabbing, please hurry. Um, before a dispatcher stated that they either heard the phone get thrown at a wall or dropped on the floor. Um, and so because of this, uh, military police being living on a little military base were very close to the scene already. They arrived just 10 minutes later. And when the police had arrived, they actually suspected at first that it was a domestic disturbance uh, because all of their lights in the house were turned off and their front door was locked with no signs of forced entry. Um, So with that, plus the phone call, they already started making assumptions. However, when they went to the back of the house, they had found that the back door was wide open and the screen door was closed but unlocked. So, of course, that's where the police entered the residence. Upon entering, the police would come across a crime scene that many have on the force had described as the worst they'd ever seen and immediately knew they needed backup. So police entered the master bedroom where they would find both Colette and McDonald. Colette was already deceased. She was laying on the floor of the bedroom with her shirt torn a little bit. It wasn't it didn't it looked like it was torn in a struggle not for like assault or sexual assault um 
and McDonald's blue pajama shirt was kind of laid over her body. Um, by the initial appearance of it, it was obvious that she had been bludgeoned, and the autopsy report, which I'll talk a bit about later, further showed that both of her forearms had been broken as well. McDonald was found laying face down unconscious uh, next to um, Colette on the bedroom floor. He had his head on Colette's chest and he had an arm draped across her kind of chest neck area. Um, It was initially actually suspected that he was also deceased. However, an officer on scene saw that he was kind of moving around or like stirring a little. Um, So they gave him immediate mouth to mouth resuscitation. It was then reported that when McDonald woke up after being resuscitated, um, he said something about needing to check on the kids and then said something along the lines of it was those goddamn hippies. I will also note here, as I mentioned earlier, um, sources vary on exactly what was said when he was resuscitated because uh, he has a different recollection than the investigators do that were on the scene. Um, but even though police reiterated that McDonald told them that it was those hippies that were here, uh, McDonald denies ever calling them hippies. So not so sure. <laughs> But as police had, were loading McDonald and Colette onto their respective hospital gurneys, McDonald was yelling that he wanted to see his children. However, police were restricting him from doing so at the time because they were still investigating the scene. So police continued searching the house, and upon entering the children's bedrooms, um, just for a little bit of context, and there will also be a picture on our website of a crime scene reconstruction drawing. You'll be able to see the whole floor plan and kind of where all the evidence was laid out. Um, but each child had their own bedroom and the bedrooms, I believe, were across from each other. Um, so the first bedroom that they entered was of five-year-old Kimberly's. They had found her in her bed, obviously bludgeoned as well. And she also had multiple stab wounds in her neck. And then they went into the two-year-old's room, Kristen, and she was found um, still laying in bed. She looked like she was asleep, except for the excessive amount of stab wounds all over her body. So back in the master bedroom, um, written in Colette's blood on the back of the bed frame was the word pig. I will get into a little bit later um, why pig might be relevant, but just now getting into the autopsies a bit. um, Autopsies were obviously rapidly performed. There's no way they wouldn't have been in this case. And it was there that they found the full scope of the injuries where the fight for their survival became clear. So Colette was found to have had both of her forearms broken, which indicated self-defense. Um, And then she was also stabbed with an ice pick 21 times in the chest. And then she was stabbed with a knife in the neck and chest 21 times. And she also had her trachea severed in two separate places. And then I just have a question. Yeah. Um, Are ice picks readily available? Like, I don't think I've ever seen one in my entire life, but almost every case that involves a stabbing, it's with an ice pick. See, I felt the same. I have also, like, I don't think I've ever seen an ice pick in person besides in, like, a museum. But Mm -hmm. I know, I mean, this was, 
I'm, I'm acting as if the 70s was like so long ago. It wasn't. But still, <laughs> I know that like some refrigerators, refrigerators didn't have a freezer. So they had like an ice box. And like an ice box had like a giant chunk of ice in it. So I'm thinking maybe like an ice pick could have been more common at that time. Yeah, maybe. But still, like it just seems... I don't know, a little excessive. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, especially like 21 times with an ice pick and then 21 times with a knife. Like that's that's a lot of stabbing. Yeah, one or the other weapon would have sufficed. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, so that's why they considered this a very brutal uh, scene, like a very brutal killing was because of what looked like the excitement of whoever did this crime. Like it's just absolute overkill. Yeah, definitely. But then five-year-old Kimberly, um, her autopsy, she was found to have had between eight to ten knife wounds, um, a fractured skull from at least two hits to the right side of her head, and another one from blunt force trauma on her face that she must have been um, hit so severely that it actually caused her cheekbone to fracture and protrude through her skin. And then I know this is very heavy. That's I I felt so gross researching this to be quite honest. Like I was like this is sad. I don't want to hear about this. Yeah, um, like she was a 5-year-old. That's insane. Yeah. And then there's also the 2-year-old's autopsy that once again is like, "Oh, this is whoever did this is a complete monster." Um, she was found, this two-year-old, to have been stabbed with a knife 33 times in her chest, neck, hands, and back, and was further stabbed 15 times again with an ice pick. And it was also noted that this two-year-old had defensive wounds on her hands and that two of the stabbings to her chest had penetrated through her heart. What? Oh, my God. Again, like... An excessive amount of stab wounds. Yeah, there's no logical explanation for someone to be like, oh, I'm in a tussle. I'm going to just stab to save myself. This is like you are adamantly going out of your way to cause this damage. Well, and yeah. like after you finish stabbing your pregnant wife, would you like 42 times? I feel like that like enough time has elapsed that maybe you would like come to your senses a little bit. Before yeah. you go and repeat that to your children? Yeah. Do we know if the children were killed before the wife? Um, Like, do we know the I, timeline of events in that sense? Or just kind of it all happened at the same time? Yeah. So there's not, um, I don't think, a confirmed timeline. There's basically what McDonald says what's happened and then what prosecution says what happened. Um but later on, I'll get a little bit into, um, like, after I tell what McDonald said happened, um, One, of, I'm just going to get into one of the theories of why it could have been McDonald besides the physical evidence, which kind of explains the absolute erratic nature of the stabbings. Gotcha. Ooh, okay. okay. So, obviously, uh, no autopsy was done on McDonald because he was still alive. However, an examination of his injuries at the hospital had revealed that uh, he had only been stabbed once 
and it was in the chest. It was about, I think they said five eighths of an inch deep. It was barely puncturing his lung, but it was enough to partially collapse his lung. Oh my God. He had a couple cuts and bruises over his body and he had a very mild concussion. And so he spent nine days in the hospital for the concussion before being released. Interesting. So, what? I just said interesting. I'm trying to like think of ways that this could have happened because like on one hand, maybe him being the largest male of the household, maybe he put up a fight, couldn't save the other people in his household, and then he took the slight hit. On the other hand, he could just be a sadistic asshole that did all of this. And this was him being like, oh, going to give myself a little cut. And then they'll never guess, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, well, yeah. this makes sense. Why it's the longest. What, what did you say? The longest like criminal proceeding or something like that? Yeah, I think it's like um, I read that it is the longest running criminal case yeah. in the United States. Wow. So, like still open, still being yeah. tried sort of thing. Which is wild. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. My thought with this was that he, like he had the ice pick and then attacked his wife, and she grabbed a knife in their like struggle or whatever, got one good stab into him, but then he took it, and then mm-hmm. that explains the she got switch in weapons in. for yeah. her. Yeah. yeah, I didn't consider that, but that's I feel like that's totally a possibility. Yeah, that's that's what makes sense to me. But I also haven't seen the like crime scene reconstruction photos, so I have no idea if that would even make sense with like the evidence that they found. Yeah, fair. But obviously, because of the crime that the police just walked into, an investigation was opened by the Army's Criminal Investigation Division. And um, obviously, what came of that was that McDonald was interviewed once he was released from the hospital. So at this point in the investigation, McDonald had no idea that he was a suspect, or at least that's what he was telling people. Um, And he told he was completely open with the military, um, and he told them everything that he could recall from that night. So the next couple paragraph sentences, I guess, are McDonald's story. So he said that he and Colette had, sorry, Colette wasn't there. He was saying that he had just put the kids to bed. Um, He put the two-year-old to bed at about 7 p.m. and stayed up for maybe an hour or so with his five-year-old daughter watching her favorite show before ultimately putting her to bed as well. Uh, At 9.40 p.m., Colette was just getting home from one of her evening college courses. And so McDonald and Colette decided to stay up for a little bit Um, and watch TV on the couch together. He didn't specify what time, but maybe an hour or so uh, later, Colette decided that she was tired and she wanted to go upstairs to bed, but McDonald stayed on the couch to watch some TV, where he ultimately fell asleep. McDonald then said that uh, he woke up on the couch, um, kind of in the middle of the night, just before 2 a.m., and he decided before going to bed with his wife, he was going to wash the dishes. At 2 a.m. However, when he got to bed, he noticed that his youngest daughter had crawled in to sleep with her mom, um, but that she had wet the bed and she was on McDonald's side of the bed. So, you know, I I wouldn't want to sleep in it either. Um, But he wanted to get in bed 
but he didn't want to wake up Colette so he could change the sheets. So he just decided to leave his or bring his daughter to back to her room where he took a blanket from the daughter's closet and slept back on the couch. Uh, McDonald then stated that on the couch, he was awoken by the sound of either Colette or one of his daughters screaming. I guess they could sound similar if you're like blood curdle screaming, but I feel like you'd be able to tell the difference between a two-year-old and an adult woman screaming. That's just my thought. (laughs) Um, But when he opened his eyes, he said he saw two white men, one black man, and one white woman with blonde hair and a floppy hat standing over him in the living room. McDonald said that the woman's face appeared to be illuminated by something um, and that while standing there, she was chanting, quote, acid is groovy, kill the pigs, unquote. This sounds very Manson-y. I was just thinking that. It's so funny you mentioned that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I'll get to that. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'll get to that really soon. (laughs) Um. So he then said that he attempted to fight the intruders, but one of them had hit him over the head with a large blunt object, uh, possibly a club, before he was able to grab it from them. But as he tried to grab it from them, um, he was stabbed in, he was, he said he was stabbed with an ice pick, uh, which is how he got the stab wound in the chest. McDonald also said that he fought with them as much as he could until they ultimately knocked him unconscious. And when he later woke up on the hallway floor, um, he got up and searched the house, which is when he found that there was no more intruders. They were gone, uh, but he had already found both of his children and his wife deceased. He said he had tried resuscitating all of them, but they were all already deceased. And he actually was the one to pull one of the knives out of his wife's chest or the knife. Ooh, I hate that. I know, I do too. Also, he's a surgeon, and I've heard that, like, if you get stabbed, you should leave the knife because, like, you know, it plugs the hole. Yeah. I I don't know. That was just another small inconsistency that I was like, um, aren't you a surgeon? (laughs) Like, don't you know what to do in this situation a little bit? You would maybe if he was like, they're both, they're dead. Let me just take this out of her. I don't know. Yeah. True. Yeah, that I is possible. I mean, I guess like he would be in shock. That would be like my only thought as to why he would logically do that. Because if he yeah. if he could see that the children are dead, the wife's dead. I don't know why why you would take it out at that point, but it feels an like option. disrespectful to leave it in almost. Kind of. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> like I wouldn't I wouldn't really want to see my significant other with a knife yeah. in her chest. That's not a pretty sight. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like. I'd also be like, okay, um, just knowing like the forensic background that we have, I'd be like, I gotta leave it in because I can't disturb the crime scene. And like, if there's fingerprints on there because I didn't do it, then I should maybe not touch the murder weapon. Yeah, no, for sure, I agree with that. <laughs> oh, I forgot to mention one part that I was about to mention a little later. Um, he had also said that in the struggle, his shirt had begun to come off his blue pajama shirt. Um, but when he found his wife deceased on the floor, he said that he, I, again, maybe this was shock talking, but he said he wanted to keep her warm or prevent her from losing more 
blood. So he took his pajama shirt and draped it over her body just to kind of, I don't know, keep her, like, maybe he didn't want to see the, the gruesome wounds, you know? That's possible. Could um, it have been him trying to save their unborn baby? Oh, I, you know what? I didn't even consider that, but that is, yeah, maybe. Do you know where she was stabbed? She was stabbed repeatedly in the chest and neck, I believe it said. Okay, so there was, like, no damage to her belly then? Not as far as I read. Interesting, okay. So, yeah, that's a possibility I didn't consider. Um, But, yeah, basically... That was McDonald's account of events because uh, he said, like, after he put the pajama shirt over her, um, he immediately called the police. I'm not sure why he would have thrown the phone, but I mean, it would make sense if he just dropped the phone. And that's why he was kind of hugging his wife because, oh, my God, my wife's dead. Um, but when police initially heard that story from him. They believed him, you know, like this man clearly went through a horrible ordeal. He's being so truthful. However, upon further investigation and analysis of the crime scene, because they took apparently meticulous photos of this crime scene and took like over 544 fiber samples alone from the crime scene, um, they began to come kind of get skeptical about his story as there were multiple parts that weren't lining up with the physical evidence of the scene. 544 is their house number. Oh, it is too. Weird. Yeah, I just put that together. I was like, that's (laughs) really odd that they would take exactly the same number of fiber samples as their address. (laughs) Yeah, that is weird. Um, But one of the physical evidence inconsistencies they found was within the pajama shirt draped over Colette. So as mentioned, McDonald stated that it was only after the attack that he had put his pajama shirt over her body. However, the pajama shirt itself was found to have over 40 stab wounds in it. Um, Which as I see by your faces, obviously if McDonald was only stabbed once while wearing it, why is there over 40 stab wounds in in the pajama shirt? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And furthermore, when investigators were moving Colette's body onto a gurney, it was noted that some of the fibers from the pajama shirt were under her head when they picked her up. Um, and it was noted that while they were found, so his pajama shirt fibers were found uh, under her head, in both of the children's bedrooms and under one of Kristen's fingernails, but there was no pajama shirt fibers found in the living room where he says he was attacked. That's super weird. Yeah. So, so like, would he, like, do you think he would have been wearing it when he attacked her? And then, like, something happened where she, like, got knocked out or whatever, and then he was like, oh, I have to put my shirt on her to keep her warm. And then just lost his ever-loving mind and stabbed the shit out of her? Or, like, how, like... It kind of sounds like at one point he used his shirt as, like, a pillow under her head at some point. Because didn't she, Mm -hmm. didn't it say there were fibers, like, under her head? Something like that? Yeah, they did find a couple of them under her head. What if he, because you said her trachea was broken, right? Yeah, it said it was severed in two spots. 
Oh, I wonder, like, if he had her in, like, a headlock and choked her out and, like, had her against him when he was wearing the shirt, and that's how some of the fibers got under her head? Oh, that's... Can you hold and stab like that, maybe? Yeah, I feel like you could. Probably. Interesting. Yeah, if that's, like, if, (laughs) if she, like, passed out that way, like, if he choked her out and, like, broke her trachea... And then later down and then put his shirt over top as like, oh, I want to keep her safe. And then he stabbed her and then either moved on to the children or the children had already been killed. Many options, many possibilities. Yeah, they all seem plausible. And honestly, you guys might might become key witnesses in in his next (laughs) court case. (laughs) If you got new new (laughs) theories, they'll want to hear them. Great. I will make sure to send them a letter. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, so that's the pajama shirt. One of the theories about the pajama shirt was that perhaps he um, had put it over her. And again, I'm going to get into this briefly later and I'm trying to like get through most of it before I talk about this part. Um yeah, and I'll explain it now. One of the theories, <laughs> one of the theories that was had as to how this went down, um, which didn't really come out, I don't think, until like um, a couple or the actual. Sorry, this case confuses me so much. But the civil case didn't actually really start until like 1975, so like five years after. Um, the actual crime because the military police were investigating it first. Um, And it was around this investigation that one, a theory came out. It was found that he was taking a new type of diet pill. Um, Turns out this diet pill was just an amphetamine um, and he was kind of abusing it. Um, It was reported, I think either during his polygraph or one of his interviews with that author that he was taking between three and five of them a day, which is very much not the recommended dose of this pill. And it was reported that with, and it was for weight loss and within a three week period, um, he lost 15 pounds. And so some of the, I don't know if it was some of the withdrawal symptoms or some of the kind of addiction symptoms of this drug included a lot of the stuff that you'll see in like methamphetamine addicts, which includes like, you can't sleep or you don't have an appetite. Um, another one was that you could go into a psychotic delusional episode or be get become like get really, really, really bad bouts of rage over like seemingly nothing. Um, so a theory is that he went upstairs to go to bed. And that's also why they said, cause they were wondering like, why is he washing dishes at 2am? If he's just getting out of, off the couch to go to bed, why is he doing dishes? They thought maybe it's because he was strung out on amphetamines. Um, but anyways, they think maybe he went up to the bedroom to go to sleep, discovered that his daughter had peed on his side of the bed. And because he was kind of getting irrationally angry because of the amphetamines, um, he started yelling and screaming. His wife woke up. They started having a very violent argument. Uh, he started hitting her. And at some point during the argument, his five-year-old daughter, they suspect, um, got in the way of the argument and he kind of accidentally like struck her really hard to the point of like, you know, like 
unconscious. It was reported in the autopsy. I didn't quite mention this, um, but it was reported that the blow to the head that was caused by a blunt object likely would have killed her within like a couple minutes of the injury. So the theory is that really big domestic dispute going on. Child gets in the way. He accidentally like really hurts the child. And then to cover it up because he knew his wife would tell he murdered his wife stabbed the kid a lot, and then he didn't want any witnesses, including a two-year-old daughter, so then he went into his daughter's room and got rid of her, and then he made up this whole story about the hippies because the Manson trial was only, like, a year prior. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and He's just I'm, recycling a plot at that point. Exactly. Like, it's already been done, buddy. Think exactly. Of new. Okay. And there was actually further evidence to suggest that he was making it up as found in the living room. Um, it was also noted that the only blood in the living room was a speck on his glasses and a little small bloody fingerprint on a magazine. It was the latest oh. edition of Esquire. <laughs> and in it was a bunch of articles about the Tate murder conducted by the Manson family, as well as a bunch of articles on the effects of acid trips. And no remember way. back to acid is groovy, kill the pigs. <laughs> oh my. So do you think he was just high on amphetamines, got irrationally angry over like either having to do the dishes at 2 a.m. or that his daughter peed on his bed and then had read the whole like Manson family thing before going to sleep that first time and then when he woke up in his amphetamine state and just lost his ever-loving mind he was like this is the best way to get rid of my family and then i can just blame it on the manson family because that was the last thing like he consumed kind of honestly i genuinely think like that's that's the theory that i think is closest Mm -hmm. that makes sense though yeah it absolutely does and there was some evidence um, that maybe he was telling the truth. Um, like, for example, apparently this area of North Carolina was, in terms of crime rates, it was it was quite dangerous. Um, and there was a woman who was pretty well known with law enforcement um, because she was herself like a, a career criminal, but more for petty crime and like drug crimes. Um And it's reported that she was very frequently seen wearing a blonde wig with a floppy hat. So they thought it could have been her. And for some reason, she confessed to multiple of her friends in like her drug circle that she was at the crime scene. But then she was formally put on the stand for testimony. And she was interrogated by police for like hours. And I think she was also hypnotized. And in the end, they actually found that like she doesn't remember a single thing. So that mixed with the fact that she was known around town just based on kind of her actions and stuff. So he could have been kind of pulling on her likeness just because he was like, oh, I know she does drugs and that's what she looks like. Um, Mm -hmm. So ultimately, maybe they did it. Maybe they didn't. I personally think all the evidence the prosecution has is way more than this girl in a floppy hat 
that does drugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Who definitely. can't remember the crime. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, but with all of the evidence coming to light, military police had charged McDonald with homicide on May 1st of 1970. So this was only like a month after the crime. And then um, his trial ended up being on August 12th of 1974 in front of the Army's grand jury. Um, However, he was dismissed on this case. They basically said, yep, I think he's right, and the hippies did it. We have no reason to suspect that anyone else, or that he did this. Um, But Colette's father was so, so, so adamant that um, McDonald was responsible for it because of his behaviors after the deaths. He basically just, he got an honorable discharge from the military and then moved to California to become a surgeon and then just started like dating around and like partying and buying a bunch of fancy stuff and basically pretending like nothing ever happened. So his father was really pissed off about that or his father-in-law. That's fair. I feel like the fact that he got an honorable discharge from the military is insane. Yeah. Oh, I agree. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And he, um, so getting that plus like basically he was kind of in the limelight cause he was a really good surgeon. And then this really massive case happened that obviously a lot of people were following. Um, so he actually ended up going on like a late night talk show after he was acquitted by like the military. And he basically said that the military sucked and was like being irresponsible with their charges. And that led to him getting civilly investigated. Cause that was like the last straw for the police. They were like, all right, he did something. Um, and that's, that's what started this very long trial. And so even though he was dismissed by the Army's grand jury, like I said, in 1974, um, this meant that the regular police and the FBI could uh, start investigating him for these crimes because the military police and the non-military police are different. So on January 24th of 1975, so it was only around six months after he was in Uh, dismissed by the grand jury of the army. He was then formally indicted on uh, counts of first degree and second degree murder of his wife and two kids. He appealed this indictment. Um, He stated that he was the victim of double jeopardy because he was already tried on the same evidence in the military. And he also was appealing because he said that his right to a speedy trial Um, was not granted because the crime happened in 1970 while he wasn't actually being civilly charged until 1975. So he thought they're making a bunch of excuses as to why they couldn't proceed with the trial yet. And so the appeal based on double jeopardy was ultimately dismissed because they just, I mean, you know, it was their decision. They didn't think they were committing double jeopardy. Um, But he was, acquitted on January 23rd of 1976 because of his speedy trial notion. So once again, he was supposedly an innocent man, but then the government appealed his acquittal (laughs) on May 1st of 1978. And so this went in front of the U S Supreme court and they once again reinstated his indictment. So 
on July 16th of 1979, finally, McDonald was being brought to civil trial uh, or for murder. And he ended up being found guilty on all charges of um, he was charged for second degree murder of his five-year-old daughter and his wife um, based on the notion that they thought he was on amphetamines and the fight that killed them was an accident, but he was sentenced or he was convicted of first degree murder of his two year old daughter because they believe it was then premeditated that he went into the bedroom to make sure there was no witnesses. So as a result of this, he was sentenced to three life sentences on August 29th of 1979. And now over the next 50, almost 50 years, his case is still active Um, There has been many more appeals and dismissals and civil lawsuits and new evidence coming out over this and generally just like a lot of court drama. There is so many podcasts and documentaries and books and everything written on this trial now. Um, I listen to so many podcasts. (laughs) So unfortunately right now, because it's like – 50 years of criminal proceedings that involve a lot of detail and like, I think over 150 witness statements alone. Um, uh, If you guys do want to hear about those court proceedings, we can definitely maybe do a dedicated episode or even write like a blog post on our website that kind of goes into more detail about it. Um, Because I don't want this episode to run three hours long. But (laughs) just for context, uh, the most recent kind of motion in his case was as recent as 2021. So it's still very active. And it's just, it's a crazy case. Yeah, it really is. I would... I would be interested in hearing about, like, the 50 years of court drama of, like, just, like, what even is going on and the new evidence and everything. Um. Yeah, yeah, like I, me too. I really, like, I did kind of skim the court proceedings because that was a lot <laughs> of, like, it, it's the longest Wikipedia document I've ever seen for a criminal, for just yeah. for context. Another thing, just to tie it kind of into what Nicole's going to tell us about, really interesting blood evidence from this case. Um, uh, what's his name? McDonald had type, I believe, B blood. Yeah, so McDonald had type B blood. Colette had type A blood. And because of this, just by happenstance, uh, Kimberly was born with type AB blood and Kristen was born with type O. So everyone in the family had a different blood type, which made it very easy even without, because uh, this was before DNA typing or DNA sequencing came out, um, they were able to basically test all of the blood spatter on the crime scene and kind of trace out the route that everything kind of happened because they found, um, like, they found three individuals' blood in the master bedroom, whereas in the living room, they only found two people's blood. So they know that someone, like, person A was murdered before person B, and then the blood was dragged throughout the house in this manner. And that's all demonstrated in the crime scene reconstruction photo uh, that we'll be posting. But super cool. And I 
it's just super crazy to me that they all had different blood types. <laughs> yeah, I just don't understand how you can have an A, B, like an A parent, a B parent, and get an O baby. I don't either. I feel like I knew at one point, and I don't remember anything about blood now. <laughs> my genetics is my, it's long gone. That was yep. a course where it went in one year, I wrote down an exam, and then it was gone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that sounds right for me, too. No, that is crazy. Yeah. But also, like, I don't know. If he wasn't the killer in this case and a different killer came in, like, this is kind of, like, the perfect crime scene to walk into it because you're, yeah. like, unless you're, like, O positive instead of O negative or whatever, mm-hmm. then they won't be able to differentiate your blood type, really. Yeah. There was definitely, that definitely would have been a perfect crime scene for an already criminal to walk in on. Mm-hmm. I'm also really excited to see this crime scene reconstruction photo. Yeah, I'll put it in uh, right now so that we can start talking about it. Um, Because, yeah, again, I would love to go into the criminal proceedings more, but it is insanely long and complicated with how many prosecutors and defense and different stories. And then the civil lawsuit with the guy who wrote the book. Like, I started using the book as um, a reference until I started like reading articles about the controversy about the book. And I was like, hold on. (laughs) I was like, wait a second. (laughs) Oh my goodness. No, that's awesome. We'll have to put up a poll when this episode comes out of like, if people want to hear more about it, because that would be kind of fun. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Rebecca, for telling us all about that absolutely bonkers case. Um, Nicole, did you want to go into a little bit about what crime scene reconstruction is? Yeah, I would love to. I would also like to note, too, just kind of bouncing off of um, with what Rebecca said about, like, the blood spatter and stuff like that. That's really neat because crime scene reconstruction is basically, like, to help give direction on what happened. And so, like, for the blood spatter and stuff like that, to be able to, like, actually, one, see the physical direction of movement, but also, like, the less shown hidden direction of like the events that night you know what i mean like there's just so much you can find out with crime scene reconstructions um so that being said though i i'm gonna go a bit over like crime scene investigations and processing crime scenes um because crime scene reconstruction is kind of like the final step of all of that and it's what brings it all together um and crime scenes can be as simple as graffiti to complex, super confusing um, scenes, including like homicide or terrorist attacks. And so when dealing with a crime scene, a crucial principle to be aware of is the Lockhart exchange principle. And this basically says that like every time contact is made, a trace is left behind. Um, Because of this body awareness at scenes is incredibly important Side note, a reason why I probably will never be able to be a crime scene investigator. Um, But, like, it's really, really important because cross-contamination, this has, like, everything to do with cross-contamination, basically. Like, um, if an investigator introduces anything into the scene by mistake or not, this means that something potentially extremely valuable can be taken away. 
Um, one thing to help reduce contamination and cross-contamination, um, this is just like a little PPE fun fact, is you wear two pairs of gloves when at the scene. Um, so you'll have an outer layer that's replaced every time you handle um, a new piece of evidence. And that is in hopes of eliminating as much cross-contamination as possible. That actually makes Plus, a lot of sense. Yeah, right? Yeah, I'd never heard that. Yeah, I forget. Um, I think it was in Andre's um, thing he had mentioned. And he also had said not to you. I don't know why this was a point. But he's like, don't use personal leather gloves. Like, I'm not sure who, what investigator would be showing up with personal leather gloves to a <laughs> crime yeah. scene. Um, like, I'd probably just, like, double up on, like, the latex, latex. gloves. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering if that was, like, a nod to the O.J. Simpson case. Like, does the glove fit? Oh, oh possibly. <laughs> okay, Very that well. Makes sense, then. Yeah. Um... But the thing about crime scenes that is kind of important is that they start changing immediately. So the people who are there, their disappearance of evidence, the start of decomp, the weather changes, the airflow, like literally every factor you can think of, the second a crime happens, that scene is changing. So it's really important to get there and observe and make all of your notes as soon as you can. Um, obviously, circumstances permitting. But that being said, officers or investigators that are first at the scene, um, they kind of do like a preliminary observation. They're going to control and record the crime scene, notice the areas surrounding them. They're going to try not to touch anything or alter anything. Um, you're going to preserve any perishable evidence. And you want to avoid path contamination. Once all of this kind of prelim stuff is done... Um, and hopefully more officers are kind of appearing at this point. Again, Rebecca will, this is going to be PTSD for you, but it's case by case. Um, each case is different. So obviously a crime scene for one and the processing of that may be um, a little bit different. And the only reason why I called Rebecca out on that is because we hear that every day at work and it's so infuriating, but it's yep. the same thing. <laughs> Yeah, it gets it gets slightly tiring <laughs> to hear. <laughs> um, but the same thing applies here. Like, uh, you're not going to process a graffiti scene the same as a kidnapping or a homicide. Um, so generally, as I go through this, I am going to kind of be talking more so like the homicide processing of these things, like the more in-depth scenes that have more evidence to work with. Um, but do just keep in mind that Again, case by case, it's going to differ. But yeah, once these preliminary stuff's uh, going on, it's important to secure and isolate the scene. So you're going to assess for any hazards. You're going to secure any entry or exit points in addition to um, areas where evidence could be left or could have been removed. Um, And so some of the, like ways to secure, this will be like use of barricades. Oftentimes you'll see like scenes taped off. Sometimes you'll have tents, ropes, all of that fun stuff. Um, And information at the scene should be recorded in depth by this point. So detailed notes regarding the state and status of evidence at the scene, photography and videography, um, the use of measurement scales, and being sure to take photos or videos before and after moving objects. Crime scene sketches are also conducted, and this is when... um, 
like the use of triangulation to find location and distances of objects comes into play. And dimensions are super important here. Um, and there are kind of a lot of things that need to be considered um, that you yourself as an investigator might absentmindedly change as you're like approaching a crime scene. And the biggest thing that we stressed, I don't know if you guys remember, I mean, we never did our crime scene reconstruction as in our forensics class, but um, the one that I TA'd, like a big thing was not that they got marks docked off of it, but it was just like a, Hey, no one really did this is turning on or off lights because you walk into a room or you open a door and the first thing you instinctively do is turn on lights. Um, you're changing a scene at that point. So that's like the first kind of error, I guess, um, walking in and even like opening up a door. Sorry, go ahead, Rebecca. <laughs> Sorry, I was just going to say, yeah, both of those things are so instinctive that like yeah. it would take so long to like untrain your brain from doing that when you walk into like a room yeah right and like you have a maybe the door is closed instinctively just to like go into it but no you're gonna want to like print you're gonna want to take fingerprints you're gonna want to see the state of the door you want to like take all of these observations um which is why like it's so much more in depth than i think people think like it's not like you're just going up to a crime scene being like like, yeah, there's a dead body there. There's some evidence thrown around. Like, this is what I see. Like, you have to be so meticulous and precise with the notes being taken. Um, one, to have a proper reconstruction afterwards, but also just to help in a court case and, like, proceedings and stuff like that. If you don't have the notes, you don't have much to go off of, if that makes sense. Um, so other things, like I said, like walking through evidence, turning lights on, opening windows, changing temperatures, anything of that nature, um, you're changing the crime scene. So that's going to affect possible evidence. That's going to affect how you, um, observe and, um, recognize evidence. Um, and so this is the reconstruction – sorry, this is the re recognition aspect of reconstructions. And this is just seeing, like, what may or may not have evidential value and then acting accordingly on that. So once kind of that recognition aspect has happened and the crime scene's been secured, notes have been taken, um, this is when the actual, like, search for evidence can begin. So it's not like you have a scene and the first thing you do is looking for evidence, like – there is a whole load of stuff that happens beforehand, um, which I think is often like overlooked. And this has to be very systematic in how it's conducted. And this will often be dictated depending on what type of crime has been committed. Um, so for example, like with burglaries, key areas to search for evidence would be entry and exit points um, for hit and runs. If you have like vehicles of, or suspect vehicles, I guess, looking at the undercarriage of cars would be a really important spot to look. Um, alternate light sources can be used as well here. So this is in, um, including visible, ultraviolet, and or infrared light. Um, and so once evidence has been found, investigators will need to collect, preserve, and package evidence. Depending on evidence is going to depend on how it's packaged. This may be paper. This may be plastic. This may be glass. A whole variety of ways to um, package evidence. 
If the scene does involve a dead body, though, more often than not, you'll kind of want to make your way to the body first, since the medical examiner will want to start their examinations as soon as possible for cause of death. death. This just reduces any more decomposition than wanted, essentially. Um, they can do their toxicology reports um, and just get as much evidence as they can before anything critical happens to the body. Um, with the handling of evidence, though, a big thing that needs to be followed is proper chain of custody. And this is basically just a list of everyone's who's, everyone who has handled the evidence from the moment it was collected to when it was analyzed to when it's presented in court, if it is presented in court. And ideally, this should be um, kept to a very low number and very minimum. Obviously, makes sense. The more people you introduce, the more possibilities of either contamination or just something going wrong with the evidence, it being destroyed, all of that. So once evidence is collected and preserved from the scene, that'll then go to the lab for testing. And as more information is obtained through these analyses, attempts can then be made to try and determine where that piece of evidence came from and its role in the investigation. So without the recognition aspect and um, these processing steps or these like analyzing steps, not much reconstruction can occur. Um, and this next step would be like the next step in crime scene processing is then crime scene reconstruction. And without the previous steps that we just talked about, like you're not going to have a great reconstruction. You just don't have much to go off of. Um, and so this is where possible scenarios are hypothesized, which help investigators determine a possible sequence of, of events about either like what happened before, during, after, or all three. And this is done via the study and interpretation of scenes. So any of the photos, the videos, the notes, um, that's going to be paired with lab examination of physical evidence and autopsy findings. So these um, kind of hypothesis or hypotheses, sorry, also kind of also rely on scientific experimentation in addition to what has what knowledge has been gained from past crime scenes. That being said, steps involved in testing hypotheses do include scientific principles, theory formation, and logical methodology. So these investigators aren't just going into a construction reconstruction blind, seeing what may or may not work to help explain the evidence in front of them. Like you're going to approach a crime scene um, to process it. It has to be very systematic. That's kind of the same with the reconstruction. You're not just going in, picking and choosing what evidence fits your narrative and then using that as your explanation. Um, with that being said, it is important to note that from a reconstruction, investigators can gain an idea as to the sequence of events, but they cannot definitively say what happened between those events. So the reconstruction, you have to view a reconstruction as a possibility and not fact, which I think people kind of get stuck on a little bit. They see it as, oh, this is what happened. So that's what happened, I guess. <laughs> um and you have to go in knowing that, like, the full story may never be known or discovered. So you can't theor – well, not to say you can't theorize. You can't speculate. That's the word I'm looking for. You can't fill in between the gaps. You can't take a leap of faith, that kind of thing. Like, you have to use what's in front of you. Um, 
The errors that can occur during reconstruction often happen when only one or like very few types of evidence are examined. And so the big picture is very much needed um, to have an accurate reconstruction. Um, I just, you said that like you can't guess at all. Like there's no guesswork in a crime scene reconstruction. Yeah. I was looking up things for like the true false on crime scene reconstruction. Yeah. And like the first step or whatever in, in crime scene reconstruction was like, it involves guesswork. Okay, yeah. So, like, what I, I guess what I'm, like, trying to say is it's, it's your guess is grounded in evidence. Right. Like, you can't just, like, be like, oh, I think this could happen. Like, you have to have reasons to back up your guesswork. Okay. Um, so, like, your guess is a, hi- your guess is a hypothesis or a theory. It's okay, not just sense. like, oh, I think Buddy did this. Like, you're not coming up with random guesses. Um, right. It's very much to support the guess. Yeah. It's yes. very much yeah. based in logic. It's based in evidence. So yes, there is guessing, but it's an educated guess. Okay. That makes, that makes sense. sense. Um, but yeah. So the next step kind of in a reconstruction process is the identification aspect. And so once kind of hypotheses are created, um, you're then going to compare class characteristics with evidence collected. And so the more specific you can get, the more individualized results you'll end up with. And class characteristics are described as properties that allow an object to be associated to a common group. So examples would be like size, color, common manufacturing patterns, that kind of thing. And class characteristics are great because it helps with the exclusion of evidence or suspects. It can be used as a link between different scenes, for example. And when there are more than one class characteristic, they become more powerful in eliminating possibilities. That being said, though, um, the degree of similarity depends on many factors. And investigators aren't excluding items solely off of like one or two characteristics. Like they need substantial proof and evidence to be able to exclude something. That's good, I suppose. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're not just being like, oh, well, that fiber's blue. Buddy's wearing blue jeans. He did it. Like, it just helps narrow it down. Um, From class characteristics, individualization then occurs. And this is, these are properties of an object that can be attributed to an individual source with a high degree of certainty. So these characteristics allow you to compare evidence with specific objects or suspects. And examples would be like natural variations, um, any damage observed or wear patterns. And an example that... um, Andre did he what was his position a constable investigator crime scene something or other I think he was a constable okay very lovely gentleman but um one of the examples he gave to kind of see class versus individual are when you're looking at shoe prints if you have like the sole of a shoe The class could be a Nike shoe, for example. That is a Nike brand. It falls into a Nike shoe. Um, 
the individual aspect of it could be a wear pattern. So say like the toe is more worn out than the heel. Well, that's you're not going to get that on every Nike shoe. So that individualizes that piece of evidence to this crime and to this individual, if that makes sense. I don't know if that was a lot of words thrown at you at once. Um, I think that makes sense. It's just so fascinating how like even rubber shoe soles can get like an individual pattern depending on like your gait and your yeah. weight and like where you distribute your weight. I didn't mean for all of that to rhyme. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's just fascinating. Like it doesn't have to be a, a biologic piece mm-hmm. of evidence to be an individualistic piece of evidence. Yeah. Yeah. Which I find so neat. Like, for example, like my Birkenstocks, my heels are so worn down because of the way I walk. So if like you compare my Birks to say like yours, Rebecca, my heels are probably a lot thinner than your Birkenstocks. And if like, God forbid something happens and police have both of us in custody and they're like, show me your shoes, they could use our Birkenstocks to be like, ah, Nicole, like there's less of a heel on this print so we're gonna lean more towards nicole than to rebecca um after individually individualizing relevant evidence um the reconstruction itself can formally begin so everything that we've done up to this point like we haven't even really started the reconstruction which i find very fascinating because it it's quite the lengthy process um i kind of briefly mentioned it but this step um, is going to involve inductive and deductive logic it's going to involve some statistics some information collected from the crime scene um, pattern analysis which i'll touch on a bit more and lab analysis results really anything you can think of that's going to be included in your crime scene reconstruction um so after data collection comparisons and analyses um happen then conjecture can occur and this word i did pull it from a couple chapters i've always associated conjecture to be a not great term with forensics um but apparently that's quite an a prominent role in crime scene reconstructions and this is where possible explanations of events are discussed however it's important to keep in mind that these explanations can't become the only explanations considered so i guess that makes sense yeah it kind of feels like they're just discussing yeah like it's basically our 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 episodes are just conjecture yeah exactly so like they take into consideration the evidence their hypotheses their experience like all of that and they go what makes sense and then, because you don't want, you're never going to have one person signing off on a reconstruction. You always need at least two. Yeah, hopefully. that makes sense. That's like standard procedure. So who knows? Um, so conjecture happens, then hypothesis form formulation. And this is where evidence and examinations are taken into account. And an educated guess, like you said, Journey, um, an educated guess as to what happens can occur. Next is testing Um, as this hypothesis will need to be either proven or disproven. Controlled and experimental testing occurs, and this will help eliminate some of the hypotheses or provide evidence supporting others. And lastly, there's the theory formation. And this is where more circumstantial evidence is considered. And this may include the condition of the victim or suspect, the activities of those involved, 
eyewitness accuracy, all of that stuff. So nothing that's tangible, physical in front of you that you can test in a lab. So now that we've gotten the steps of reconstruction kind of covered, that was a lot all at once. I will say I apologize, but I wanted to briefly talk about pattern evidence reconstruction because I feel like this is also kind of like we discussed earlier in um, with McDonald's case, the blood spatter and the blood pattern. That would be a blood pattern reconstruction that was conducted. So there are very many types. So listeners, if you do want to hear more, just let us know. We'll delve into them a bit more into um, in future episodes and we can do some more research. But these reconstructions can be really valuable when it comes to larger crime scene reconstructions. They can help prove or disprove alibis, um, eyewitness statements, involvements of a person or object, and maybe even provide new leads, um, which I thought was really interesting. And so, like I said, there's bloodstain pattern, and you can listen to more about bloodstain in episode 28 that we did. Um, there's glass fracture patterns, and this can tell you like whether an impact occurred outside or inside of wherever that glass was, um, the approximate force and angle of the impact. Um, but it is important that investigators need to have a good understanding of glass types for this, though. I didn't realize there were three types of glass. There's plate, tempered, and safety. Um, so you need to know those three and their associated characteristics to be able to make sound decisions. So not everyone, I should have mentioned this at the beginning, not everyone can do a crime scene reconstruction. Like it, it takes a very specific type of person to be able to conduct one of these. Um, but then you also have fire burn. Wow, fire burn patterns. This look. This can tell you where the fire started, the direction it moved in. You know how much damage it caused. Um, we're thinking about doing an arson episode, so keep your ears peeled for that. There are furniture position patterns, and this is the position and condition of furniture um, if the scene is indoors. Um, you know, are they displaced? Are they broken? This could possibly indicate a struggle. Are they, is there something missing or out of place in a room? That kind of thing. There are trail or track trail patterns. Um, if people were moving about the scene before, after, or during the major event. Um, so like you said, Rebecca, with like, you could take a track trail pattern and blood pattern evidence to kind of decide or hypothesize the movement of someone from room A to room B if they were even moving in in the first place. Um, this can tell you the nature of the movements. So were they walking or were they running? Um, the direction of travel or if objects were being carried or dragged. There are also tire or skid mark patterns. These are often seen outdoors and they're very valuable in traffic accident reconstructions they can often indicate the number of vehicles involved, the speed a vehicle was going, the direction they were traveling in, as well as if brakes were applied or not. Um, then there is also clothing article damage or position patterns. I kind of read this similar to furniture position patterns, but on a smaller scale and with like clothing and smaller objects. So this mainly helps in determining whether rooms have been ransacked or not. So if you go into a bedroom and there's clothes thrown everywhere, like 
Were they looking for something? What could that tell you? Um, there's also modus operandi and crime scene profile patterns. These are a bit more subtle and extensive knowledge of the of criminals and their past crimes are required. Um, if you do want to hear a bit more about MOs, though, check out episode 43. We discussed them a, um, a little bit in that. I like that this is basically just like a plug for all of our previous episodes. (laughs) I realized as I was writing this too, and I also excluded some episodes that we did because like we touched on them, but they weren't like the focus of our episode. Um, Because pretty much every piece of evidence that I've touched on, we've talked about. Um, But these were like the main, the main episodes. No, that makes sense. Um, there's also projectile trajectory and powder residue patterns. This has a lot of math involved. I will say we did, um, a, was it ballistics or projectile lab in university? Did we do that? And it took a lot. Yeah, the projectile lab. It was in the, the McNally basement physics lab. Yeah. It it was was part of our physics unit. A lot of math. So you have to be good at that to do this one. I will say, <laughs> I don't remember any of the math. Like I remember, like doing the uh, mm-hmm. the lab, but I don't remember any of the calculations that we had to do. I think I've repressed it to a point that it's just gone. <laughs> yeah, I remember, same. like blood spatter was fairly easy. Like you had sine, cosine. Like it was stuff you could work with. Um, physics. They gave me a, a equation, and I said sure. And I just put the numbers in. <laughs> I could not <laughs> tell you the functions yeah. of it or how it works. Yeah, that's fair. Um, but this can help determine whether like certain deaths using or involving guns were homicides or suicides. It's also helpful in locating the positioning of shooters and victims, that kind of thing. And lastly, there's also injury or wound patterns. Um, we actually recently discussed this again in episode 55, not to plug another episode, but check that one out too. We talk about forensic traumatology. Um, I also just wanted to briefly talk about kind of the tech advances that have been seen in regard to um, forensic crime scene reconstructions. There's been a, quite a bit of literature surrounding the use of like artificial intelligence, 3D imaging, that kind of thing. I will say I'm not positive how how common these advancements are being like implemented into law enforcement and how they're being um, explored as complementary tools within investigations. Uh, but I do know research is being done to kind of like create a groundwork to hopefully implement more commonly. Um, For like the 3D imaging – do you yes. think that it would be like they kind of go in, they take all the measurements of the room or whatever, they put it into like this computer program, and then the computer kind of spits out like a 3D image of what that room looks like? Yeah, basically. So like from my understanding, you're going in and you've got all of this high-tech gadgets and gizmos. You're taking like – there's lasers involved and measurements of all sorts, and you're basically like just scanning the room and taking multiple scans of the room at different angles. And then you're, um, what's the right word? Like you're joining them all together, I guess, to create a 3d rendering of a room. 
um, or a body or anything of the sort because it's also used for like wounds if you have a body um you can use it for wounds yeah one of the studies i read did that um because they were looking at wounds caused by a vehicle accident um and they were using 3d imaging to like compare the car the wounds where the individual was like pinched and stuff like that and like try to explain um the order of events right no that's Um, very cool yeah. Um, and so there was a systematic literature review that was conducted actually in 2022. So quite recently. it Well, it was published in 2022. Conducted both in 2022. Anyways, it's new. Um, and it looked at 258 papers that were published between 2005 and 2021. It revealed that some of the challenges and shortcomings in traditional methods of reconstruction that I talked about um, at the beginning. So this includes like digital media, hand sketches or hand drawings, manual measurements and paper documentation. And some of the challenges were like errors, I guess. Um, These boiled down to human error, low precision, image distortion, uh, potential data manipulation, Restricted time and cost because you only have a certain time frame you can kind of work in when you're in a crime scene, um, in addition to visual limitations. And a big thing, too, is that traditional methods only allow information to be documented in two dimensions. So, like, you have your piece of paper and you draw, you can draw as many variations of your crime scene as possible, but you're still only looking at it at, in two, 2D. Um, so the fascinating thing with that, though is technologies like augmented reality, virtual reality, or mixed realities are being like proposed and implemented or like, like they're basically like, Hey, this is technology you can use. Why don't you use it? Here are the reasons why. Um, And the possibilities are so cool in my opinion, because they not only assist investigators in their reconstructions and like maybe seeing things that they may have missed the first time, but it also poses the option of like juries being able to interact with crime scenes, like them being able to see what the scene looked like or like the evidence in front of them, like if they were there in person. That's very cool. It is. I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate here with regards to like the jury seeing like a a reconstruction Mm -hmm. that detailed. I wonder if that would hinder the case in terms of like, um, kind of causing a big shock factor Mm -hmm. to the jury members. Um, cause I remember. I was listening to an interview with one of the jurors from this trial. And he said, like, by the time they finished uh, deliberating, like, there was not one jury member that wasn't crying because they did not expect to be so traumatized by the pictures of the evidence that they saw. Because they had to look at the autopsy, like, they had to look at the original crime scene photos. So of like of these young children, and then they had to look at like the autopsy photos. And obviously this is all normal in a criminal case, but I wonder if providing them more and more detailed crime scene evidence might like hinder Mm -hmm. their ability to make like a neutral decision. I would hope this is just me hoping I have no idea, but I would hope that like they would present it in a way to reduce that shock factor. Like maybe take the body out from the scene. Like, yeah, true. That would at least kind of 
Yeah, I know yeah. what you mean. I don't know where I was going with that, but I, I yeah. totally know what you mean. No, but I can 100% um, ag- like I agree with the shock factor too. Like I could maybe see them like providing different scenarios and then letting them like if they want to see it. I don't know. I don't know how juries work. I just thought it'd be cool to like because I feel like as a jury member, unless the evidence is put in front of you, you don't really you can't tangibly like understand. And a yeah. lot of times too like Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I I I don't think um it has been used in juries. I think this is just like a proposal of like where it could go in the future. Um but with that too like on top of like just juries though, but um so augmented reality this is where it superimposes digital information onto the real world um so like i guess you could go say an investigator could go back to the crime scene that may have been cleaned up use some ar and then superimpose evidence found initially at the crime scene and kind of like rewalk through it and see you know what circumstances or scenarios may have made sense in that um regard then you have um, virtual reality, which can generate computer 3D environments based on real world settings. And this can allow investigators and others to like revisit crime scenes while not physically being at the crime scene. So like I could be in my bedroom with a VR headset on and be like walking through a crime scene, that kind of thing. Um, so it just kind of like creates more opportunities to maybe find something or find evidence that may have been overlooked due to time restraints or circumstances in that sense. Um, the most interesting that I was the mixed reality. I am not super familiar with mixed. I'm kind of, I more know, I know more about VR than the other two, but I guess mixed reality consists of like merging digital environments and real world environments. So this produces like a whole new environment together where investigators can not only revisit the virtual scene, but they're able to like virtually interact with objects or like points of interest without fear of like contamination or like without time constraints, that kind of thing. Um, Which I thought that would be so cool. Like to go back to a crime scene and be able to like handle things and like view them without screwing up a whole investigation it would be so so cool yeah but like my only fear with that is like it would have to be uploaded into the oh. game with no issues well that's the thing too that was one of the downfalls is like you have to have a space to store all of this data and all of this electronic data and information mm-hmm. make sure it doesn't it can't be corrupted make sure like xyz so like there's so many I assume this is why it has not been implemented (laughs) in a lot of these uh, agencies. Um, But I think if they're able to regulate and standardize these things and find ways to safely store, safely encrypt, safely whatever the data, I think there's a lot of potential. Yeah, maybe not for starting off with homicide scenes but like little scenes here and there to like see what more information you can find exactly no i think that'd be very cool 
Um, but yeah, so like on top of just storing the data and like those limitations, other limitations do include cost as many of these systems are quite expensive. Um, and it's unfortunate because you're kind of trading precision for cost at this point. Um, and another limitation is environmental influence on data validity. So this means that, you know, if there's poor ambient lighting, if there's a hard to reach area in the room, um, this may lead to interpret misinterpretation, excuse me, of the data at hand, um, which would not be helpful if you're basing, if you're going back to like revisit a scene, looking at what's there, but something you're looking at was never there in the first place. Like there are some issues in that. Um, lastly, there are also deviations when it comes to margins of error as the technology and manufacturers kind of each have their own margin of error calibrations. So if you're using one piece of equipment, that's going to give you different readings, maybe from a different one. And how do you standardize that? You know, all of that is to say that the use of 3D imaging and advanced technologies, super interesting and fascinating research area at the moment. Um, I'm excited to see if it actually becomes something in the future. Um, and, you know, how how this may change crime scene investigations for the better or for the worse. You never know. <laughs> yeah, no, it would be like in a perfect world, it would be so, so cool to get this mm -hmm. 3d imaging and like VR crime scenes and stuff would mm -hmm. be so cool. Yeah. I think VR would pose like the most beneficial to use. I'm not sure how the, the mixed reality could work. Because I would assume if you're, like, picking things up and interacting with things, you would have to be able to, like, scan 360 an object. But once yeah. you do that, you're moving it from its scene. <laughs> so, like, there's some hiccups that need to be worked out, I, I yeah. would say. <laughs> no, it's so, so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I hope the hiccups are worked out because I think that would be so instrumental. Right. Um, yeah. Well, um, thank you, Nicole, for yeah. telling us all about crime scene reconstruction. It was yeah. awesome to learn about it and how it would be applied to um, the Jeffrey McDonald case. Mm -hmm. um, our next topic is going to be uh, psychological disorders. Um, so that one will come out in November. But before that, we're having a very special Halloween episode coming out on Halloween. Um, we're focusing on three different witch trials, but we're not going to tell you which ones, so you'll have to listen and find out um, how that episode goes. We're very excited about it because we've wanted to do that episode for a long time. Uh, so tune in on Halloween and in November for more on us. Um, my fun fact or whatever for this episode, mm -hmm. um, I was watching the unknown uh the Lost Pyramid, I think, on Netflix. Yeah. yeah. And I wanted to tell you guys about the um, the scroll that they found, the papyrus that had... It was like the first full papyrus that they'd found in Saqqara and possibly ever. It was 52 feet long, and it contains like the most intact... Um, like description of the Book of the Dead, like the chapters that they had. Cool. It was That is so cool. So cool. Yeah. So... Um, tune in tomorrow on our instagram and i'm doing a forensic friday post on that that has just a little bit more information on that um so so cool i was like i've been telling every single person i know about this because it's just so fascinating i was obsessed with ancient egypt as a child so like 
hearing about this kind of stuff and like finding even more cool stuff like this is just it makes my little childhood heart so excited same you have to watch um the lost pyramid on netflix so good i will i didn't even realize there was a new documentary like that on netflix so i will be watching it as soon as possible (laughs) perfect what were you gonna say nicole um Kind of related, unrelated, um, speaking of scrolls and speaking of high-tech imaging stuff, did you guys hear about the scroll in Herculaneum that pieces the carbonized scroll from Herculaneum um, that was destroyed with Pompeii? Aspects of it have been read for the very first time using that kind of technology. And they've, wow, one that's of the amazing. Words, Right. One of the words they were able to pick it was purple, which was very interesting because the purple dye was like a very significant royalty thing. Mm-hmm. So they're curious as to like see how that played out in they're Yeah, they're doing more on it. But that's my so contribution. Cool. I did not know that. I'll see if I can find the link and send it to you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Okay. I do want to say too, looking at this crime scene photo <laughs> reconstruction, it's like kind of poorly done. Like really badly done. <laughs> like well, I, was I don't see a like single measurement photo. Yeah, it yeah. just looks like a sloppy drawing. Yeah, it's, it's literally just a blueprint with like odd yeah. body placements, and then like a o o. Yeah, it's like this thing is labeled stuffed doll. Like this would like, be your kind of your rough initial sketch. Mm-hmm. But there's no measurements. There's no, like, I don't know. I don't know if this was just like, this is what we can provide to the public. Here you go. Have this and feast on it. Um, yeah. But yeah, this was like not, maybe that's why it's a 50 years, 50 year long trial. <laughs> because yeah. this is not done well. <laughs> yeah. One other really tiny thing I wanted to know briefly, just like I remembered it as I was looking at this. Um, if you'll notice, one of the only places that only Jeffrey McDonald's blood was found was in the kitchen. Um, mm. And that happened to be um, basically next to where they kept like the knives. And it was one of the only places that his blood was found was like near the sink and near like their utensil drawer. So. Oh, why Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Like, it was uh, it was interesting. Just another little. Did he do it? Probably, probably. Well, even that, like, there, like, there's O blood in the bedroom, but yeah, the two year old was never in their bedroom. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that there's A and A B blood in where the youngest daughter was. Hmm interesting we'll never you know listeners I, will have to have a look at it and let us know what you think about it yeah 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 um and with that being said rebecca did you want to tell people where they can find us i would love to so people can find us on instagram youtube and facebook at what the forensics um or you can find us on twitter at wt forensics pc but we don't update it very much so that shouldn't be your first option um Or if you want to check out any of our sources or the images that we were talking about in today's episode, also where you're going to find all of our Forensic Fridays and just some cool little new news updates about us, uh, head on over to our website, whatthefrensics.ca. 
And then finally, if you want to get in contact with us for any reason, you got any comments or story suggestions, uh, just reach out at whatthefrensics at gmail.com or private message us on one of our social media platforms. And make sure to review us wherever you listen to podcasts because we love to read them. It keeps us relevant and keeps us going. Um, with that being said, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed it and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye! Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you next week. Mm-hmm.